good to be with you this morning. Um, we are in the final week of a series on 1 Corinthians 15, and we've made it all the way to the end, and uh, the whole chapter is about the resurrection. And um, this week has been a tough week around the nation and the world, um, and we think specifically uh, of the, the town of Uvalde, Texas, and what has been lost there, the lives lost across uh, the nation and the, and the world and through the span uh, of uh, our nation's history as we celebrate Memorial Day this weekend. Um, and in some ways, uh, the chapter that we have been walking through uh, feels uh, both timely and, uh, and, and much needed. We, we need some hope in the world. And so I hope to offer some of that today. Uh, as, uh, as we get into this, uh, let's, let's begin with a word of prayer. God, we come this morning, and uh, after watching that video, our hearts are, are lightened and uh, filled with joy. And the beauty of our kids uh, you know, running around and laughing and, and playing together and worshiping together uh, is a wonderful and beautiful thing, God, and we thank you so much for that. And then also our hearts are heavy with what's happening uh, in the world, and um, we can't help but notice that the world's not quite right. And um, so this morning, we each come with our own sense of what's going on in our lives, uh, personally and, and corporately, and as a nation and as a world. And God, you, we know that you meet us here in this place where we are, and we thank you for that. And this morning, as you meet us here, may we open our hearts to you. May we hear your word through the reading of your scripture, uh, through the preaching of your word, through the singing of songs, may you speak to us, and may we listen. Lord, may we be the kind of people who live resurrection lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, if you will, one last time, uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It helps if you have your own Bible. If you don't have one of your own, uh, there's one in the pew in front of you, and I highly recommend uh, going ahead and pulling that out. Uh, we uh, have been walking ever so slowly through this chapter, and we're going to finish it up today and start in verse 50. First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, and starting in verse 50. As you turn there, uh, very quickly to remind us of, uh, there's essentially two questions that have been posed by Paul to the Corinthian people, uh, and that set the context for what we're talking about. The first question came back in verse 12, if you remember, and in verse 12, he asks the question, if Christ, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, which apparently these folks have believed, they've, they've, they've believed that Jesus died and was raised again from the dead, well then how can some of you say 
that there is no resurrection of the dead. And if you remember, we're talking about a corporate resurrection. For some reason or other, it seems they didn't believe, some of them did not believe that the dead will be raised uh, from the dead. And Paul is saying, no, uh, this defeats everything that Jesus came to do, and this defeats even the fact that you believe in Christ's death and resurrection. Fast forward then to verse 35, and Paul gets to a very specific kind of sub-question here, uh, and it's the sub-question that he continues in the verses that we're about to read again. And, and here in verse 35, he asks, well, someone's going to ask these questions, and he's basically saying, so I'm going to go ahead and answer them anyway. And he says, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? How are they raised, and what kind of body do they come with? And as I mentioned last week, Paul is treading where angels even fear to trod, uh, where uh, he's talking about things that are yet known and, and, and not un, uh, unknown and, and not yet quite known, uh, and he's, he's finding himself in a place where today he's going to even call it mystery, um, and yet he has a few things that he wants to make clear to us this morning. So if you will, uh, starting in verse 50, he continues on. And he says this, he says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does perishable inherit the imperishable. Flesh and blood, you know, the material world, it does not inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the, uh, nor does the perishable uh, inherit the imperishable. I don't know why, I got stuck on the word this week. I got stuck on the word inherit. Uh, the more I read it, the more it became odd to me that one would inherit the kingdom of God. It seems he could have used uh, just about any other word. You might have expected something like uh, enter. Someone cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, right? Uh, we could see that, or uh, someone might not get into the kingdom of heaven, or, you know, however you want to say, but that's not what Paul says here. He says, uh, one cannot inherit this, which got me thinking, why would he use this language? Why this metaphor, right? An inheritance? I assume we all know what an inheritance is. I don't expect much uh, myself, but, uh, you know, maybe some of you do. But inheritance is something that, uh, that is passed down to you from the generations before you, right? And uh, in, in, in Paul's day, it's, per, it's possible he's thinking uh, and he's trying to get these uh, Corinthian uh, people to think about uh, their own inheritance, maybe. But I don't think that's really what's happening here, because inheritance uh, in scriptural uh, imagination has uh, quite a, a lengthy history. And there's really two ways it, it kind of uh, pokes its head out, specifically when one is inheriting, inheriting a, a kingdom or a kingdom of, of heaven in this place. Uh, the first line of thought for me was uh, that it's actually Jesus who inherits, right? He is the, uh, the rightful king 
who inherits a kingdom from his father, right? And this is kind of what we think of when we, we think of like David, the king, passing the kingdom down to his son, who passes it down to his son, who passes it down to his son, right? And maybe this is part of what's going on. And you and I find ourselves inheriting this kingdom as we, as he says in just the, 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 the verses prior to this, uh, as we are in Christ, well, so we too find ourselves in this kingdom, because we too inherit the kingdom, because Jesus has inherited the kingdom. And it is quite likely uh, that this is part of uh, the calculation that Paul's making here. Uh, but there's, uh, I think, another piece, actually, uh, as I started to look around. Uh, the, uh, the Old Testament is filled uh, with the notion that Israel was to inherit the land. Right? The, the land in particular was an inheritance from God. This is what the Israelite people believed way back when. Uh, and then this land, is, this, we call it the promised land, right? the land that is promised to the Israelites, uh, this gets passed down from generation to generation to generation. And, and Paul is saying this. He's saying there is indeed a kingdom out there. And uh, it is a promised land. And you just have to rethink your way around exactly what that inheritance looks like. Because it's not the sort of passing down of a land or a kingdom that you might be used to or you might be thinking of. This is a kingdom of God that is of a different nature altogether. In fact, it's one that is not passed down from flesh and blood. That's not how you inherit, it, inherit this. You don't inherit this because you have the right dad or the right mom. You inherit this in a different sort of way. You inherit this because you find yourself, again, in Christ and not in Adam. This is the language he's been using all along. And we need to find ourselves in this place as well if you and I are to find ourselves inheriting the kingdom of God. Because this kingdom is not one that will perish or pass away, frankly, unlike the kingdom of Israel itself, which did pass away, or the kingdom of, of Rome, which did pass away, or the Babylonian Empire, which did pass away, or most empires, which pass away at some point. He says this empire, this kingdom, well, this one, this one is imperishable. And he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And Greg told me a wonderful joke this morning that we should write this on the walls of the nursery. <laughs> we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. <laughs> Thank you, Greg. <laughs> Uh, but this is, of course, not what he means. We shall not all, all die, is the point, uh, but we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye, right? We will be changed. And his point here is that, uh, that yes, he had just said in the, uh, in the passages prior that we must die in order to then be raised again from the dead in newness of life. And then he's saying, but there is this mysterious fact 
that some of us aren't going to die, and yet we will still be changed. Here's what I take from this. To you, for you and I, this is probably not that much of a, a, a big deal. It's not a, a mystery. But for some reason, it is for either Paul or for his, uh, his hearers, for the Corinthian people. But here's what I like. I like that Paul uses the word mystery. And he actually uses it any number of times, 20 plus times, just to tell you, uh, in his letters. Paul talks about mysteries, which is to me saying, there are things I don't know. And I, I have said this from the pulpit before, there are things I don't know. And I feel comfortable saying that when I see Paul saying, there are things I don't know, right? And that's okay. And he says, I tell you this mystery. I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know what it's going to look like. But we've all got to get changed somehow because we have to move out of the perishability of ourselves into some sort of imperishable life. And he goes on and he says, for the perishable body must put on the imperishable. And he starts using clothing imagery here, which is actually uh, common enough I won't go into it. Uh, the perishable body must put on the imperishable. The mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then, then shall come to pass the saying. And here he quotes and he pulls together these two verses. Uh, one is from Isaiah 25 and the other is from Hosea and he pulls them together into one nice little quotation, and it is a, a, essentially a taunt uh, of death itself. He's taunting death, and he's, he's personifying death. Thanatos, by the way, uh, I haven't really seen the uh, Marvel movies, uh, but I know that there is a character named Thanos. Thanos thank you, son. Uh, I knew you'd get my back here, uh, which is a form of, of Thanatos, death, right? It's a personified character. Uh, and this is exactly what Paul is doing. There's, in fact, uh, in, in, in Greek mythology itself, uh, a, a god uh, of death, Thanatos. Uh, and here we find uh, Paul taunting this character, maybe the god Thanatos. He's saying, oh, death. Oh, death, you think you're so strong. I know that you've won so many times, right? I know you've defeated so many human lives, life after life after life after life, but your time has come up. And he says, Oh, death, you are swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And this whole chapter has been building to this point. It's been one big long crescendo to the fact that Jesus' death and resurrection, it means something significant for the entirety of history. It has changed the course of everything because to this point, death has had a 100% track record. And now suddenly... Suddenly, the game has changed because of one 
person, one man, one God-man, Jesus Christ, who died and was resurrected and whose death and victory over death means that you and I, well, we get to participate in that victory as well. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And then he, he kind of goes on a little rant at this point, and, and, he, and he tells us what the sting of death is. He says the sting of death is sin, and then the power of sin is the law. And the way I read this verse and these lines, it's, there's actually quite a lot happening here. Uh, the letters uh, to the Galatians and to the Romans uh, at length talk about the role of the law in all of this. But to give it to you in brief, it's a little easier to read this backward and to say it's actually, in some ways, it's the law that empowers sin or it makes sin sin, right? It tells us this is sin and this is not sin. That's what the law's job is to do. The law cannot save us. The law cannot make us sinless, but it sure can tell us what we've done wrong. And so the law for Paul here and elsewhere, it empowers sin or makes sin sin. And, the, and then sin empowers death or leads to death. And death is the thing we most need victory over and then he says very clearly exactly how all this works. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. This phrase, Lord Jesus Christ, it rolls off the tongue a little too quickly, a little too easily, but don't forget what we're talking about here. We are talking about a Lord who is a king of a kingdom, the kingdom of God, and this king died on our behalf and was raised again from the dead, defeating sin and death altogether. And now as the Christ, as the anointed one, as this king, Jesus himself is seated at the right hand of the Father and intercedes on our behalf. And then one final line, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so if you have any concerns that what you're doing in this life is somewhat meaningless or seems trivial or, or doesn't have consequence, Paul is here to tell you, actually it does. It has a lot of consequence because you are in this moment serving the Lord. Your labor is not in vain. You are doing the work of your master, the Lord, the king of this kingdom, and continue on. Keep doing this work. And so as we get to the end of a, a very long chapter, right, chapter 15, to sum up everything that's been going on, 
I, I think that this whole chapter and, and the pieces that we just read, they at least do this much. They at, they at least answer three really important questions. And the first question is this, what's wrong with the world? It's a question we know too well this week, right? When a shooter walks into an elementary school and kills 19 children and two adults, what is wrong with the world? We are reminded of just how dark the darkness can be in this place. And I would add that when you and I engage in the darkness of some kind, and we call it sin, and Paul calls it sin, we are flirting with and we are entertaining the same kind of darkness that we saw in very stark terms just this week. And we are drawing that into our own lives. Seeing the darkness that we've seen this week should drive us in the exact other direction, into, the, into frankly, the arms of Jesus who has and will deliver us from the powers of death and evil and sin. This week should remind us that something is not right with the world and the gospel of Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection is an answer to that problem. It is the redemption plan for all that is wrong. The second question that is worth asking is, who am I? Who am I? And I think this chapter as a whole answers this question over and over and over again. Pascal says, uh, he says, not only do we not know God except through Jesus Christ, we don't even know ourselves except through Jesus Christ. We don't even know ourselves except through Jesus Christ. The person of Christ is a window into the nature of God, yes, but he is also a window into our own souls. Souls that have been covered over with hurt and with abuse. The pain of the world, we've covered it over with ego and selfishness and pride. But underneath it all, sits something deeper and more fundamental to humanity, the image of God, the image of the Son. This is what gets talked about in the verses that precede the ones we read today. And it's only through Christ that we begin to glimpse and begin to see what that image should look like inside each of us. Belief in Christ is not just punching a ticket into heaven. Belief, it, belief in Christ is saying, I trust Christ enough to see that the image of God he reveals is the same image that I should be living out. It is part of my design. I believe in Christ. I trust in Christ and therefore will submit my life to his working on me. I will let him hammer upon my soul. I will let him take the bent and broken parts of me, the misshapen parts, and I will let him shape them back into an image that I was designed for. The image that he lived out. 
And one day, when he calls me heavenward, I will put on the imperishable. I will put on the immortal. And I will bear the image of God wholly and completely as I was always meant to. Or to say it differently, Paul in Ephesians 4, 20 to 24 writes, However, is not, this is not the way of life that you've learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off that old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, to be created, to be like God in true righteousness and in holiness. The third and final question that Paul keeps asking or answering is, what's next? (laughs) What's next? This life is not the end. Christians do not believe that this life is the end of it all. In fact, it's, it's the beginning of something greater. Can I tell you a secret? I don't believe in purgatory. But sometimes I do. I believe that we're in it right now. (laughs) That this life is a purging (laughs) of what we are supposed to get rid of in preparation for the life that we are supposed to be living. The truth and the goodness and the beauty found in this life is but a small crack in the wall of heaven, allowing us to see a mere peek into the fullness of life that God has in store for us. I do believe that there is goodness in this life. And I don't want you or any other Christian to pretend like this life isn't good and that there's not beauty and that it's just awful and terrible. That is not good theology. There are some really great things in this life but they are a mere peek into what's to come. They just give us the the, the faintest glimpse of the fullness of life that is awaiting us on the other side. Death, death is an enemy. There is no doubt about it. Paul says it any number of times in this chapter, right? It's an enemy that needs to be defeated, needed to be defeated, I should say, And Christ has defeated it for us. But it's not only an enemy. And Paul alludes to this in this chapter. If you've been paying attention, death is also a a marvel portal (laughs) or a door into the world to come. It is not only the end the end of mortality and perishability, but it is also the beginning of something new. Through that door, a transformation happens. As we read last week, the seed that is planted, that seed that is planted, it must die to become fully itself. The Gerber daisy seed must die to become the Gerber daisy. (laughs) 
that we saw up front here. That's what that was, I think. I'm pretty sure anyway. The cucumber seed, it must go into the ground and die to become the cucumber plant. The California redwood starts off as just a little seed, right? And it grows to the glorious heights and towers over the beautiful earth. But first it must go into the ground. It must die. And then become what it was always meant to be. Or, to use a different analogy, one that Paul does not employ here, the door of death leads us to a new home, a truer home in many ways than the one we currently inhabit. I love the home of the earth that we have. I love the home that is this life, and I believe that you should too. I I believe that what we have here and what we find here It continues in some fashion into what's to come. But what is to come is a redeemed and a restored version of what we have here. And so the home that awaits us, well, it's a fuller picture of any home we can imagine here. And to conclude this sermon, I have a poem for us. It's a poem written by the very first pastor of this church, Tom McMillan. I can't remember where I found it. I think I might have read it in the past. I enjoy it. So I'm going to read it again. Tom McMillan wrote it. I love that he starts the way he does because he assumes a lot of you and me, the reader. It starts with Koheleth, the preacher. Do you know who Koheleth is? Do you know this? Yeah, see, I love Tom McMillan right now. He is the the, the author of Ecclesiastes, the one who writes, there's a time to die and there's a time to live, there's a time to go to war and there's a time for peace and there's a time for all the things, right? I set that up to, to read his poem. Koheleth the preacher claims, there's a time to live, a time to give, a time to die, but the latter I can't buy. Not death, but homegoing. Work stowing, spirit flowing, homegoing. It's not my expiration date or a realization of my fate, it's homegoing. God knowing, soul sowing, homegoing. It's a homegoing. No need to cry, I didn't die, I'll match the Savior grace to grace, move with the Spirit race to race, I'll meet the Father face to face. It's a homegoing, a grace glowing, faith showing, homegoing. Now it's time to really laugh, dying on the Father's fatted calf. It's a homegoing, a hell snowing, sticks rowing, trumpet blowing, homegoing. What's next, Paul asks. We don't know for sure, but it's a home that is truer than the one here could ever give you and that you could ever imagine. It's a life that is fuller and filled with more color and more beauty and more truth than we could ever begin to imagine. Occasionally we get these glimpses of it. Someday we will know in full.
Let us pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your love. God, you loved us so much that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, not only to die on our behalf of our sin, but to rise from the dead victorious over death that we might join you in the fullness of life for eternity. That is what you offer us. That is what you offer us. And we say thank you. We open our arms wide and we say thank you. Lord Jesus, we indeed look to you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Grant us more faith. Grant us more trust that we might find ourselves in you and thereby inheriting the kingdom of God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.